0: Um, at this point in time, I was very fortunate when I was in Israel last May that I got to have dinner with her brother and his family who live um, outside of Nazareth, Never. right? which was just absolutely wonderful. It's just very, very special Anne is beyond special. I don't have words to describe how wonderful she is and was 10 years old uh, when she got pulled into all the horrors of World War II and a July 4th of 1944 is when she was liberated. She's going to tell you her story. It is absolutely wonderful. She was a Holocaust survivor. who was not in a camp, um, which makes her very, very special indeed. So I give you just all of my heartfelt emotions, and jacket. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon to all of you, and thank you for inviting me to Villanova again. That's my 10th year, is that it? How many times I've been here? All right, I know already the road by heart from Wilmington to Villanova. Um, Those of you who will have to, how many of you, raise your hand, have to leave at 4.30, because I will know then how to. Everybody's staying. Oh, okay, one person, they'll sneak out quietly, so we'll have no interruptions, okay? All right, young people, Uh, thank you all for coming. I want you to know that I'm so glad that you came because you, your generation, is probably the last one who is still privileged to hear from an eyewitness of what happened during World War II in Europe. I am one of those witnesses, as uh, uh, Professor Schofield said, I was 10 years old when the Nazis came in, and I was liberated when I was 13. I am 80 years old now. So I want you to know when your children will be sitting in these seats, there won't be any more eyewitnesses. So it will be up to you, young people, someday to share it with your children, hopefully with your families now, so that. This way we will not, the victims will not be forgotten and we will have learned the lesson of this tragic period, what we call the Holocaust. Um, Every Holocaust survivor has their own story to tell. Uh, I was a lucky one. I was lucky for several reasons. Because I survived with my parents, there are so few who have survived with their parents and that made all the difference in the world after the war what type of an individual I grew up to be. Because I had someone to turn to. I was not in a concentration camp. The area where I come from, nobody was sent to concentration camps. Uh, This was, uh, they called it the killing fields, the area where the Soviet Union has occupied in 1939. You probably learned it in history. If you're a college student, I don't have to give a historic background. You know that Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union have divided Poland where I was born in two parts. Nazi Germany took Western Poland, the Soviet Union took um, Eastern Poland. And the worst killings actually, I've just learned recently by having read the hist- history of that period that these were the major killings going on because Nazi Germany wanted the area, the Soviets wanted the area. And they, between the two of them, most of the killings were done there more so than even in the concentration camps. I come from a very small village. The total population of my village were about 1,200. Out of the 1,200 people, there were about 350 Jews. Out of the 350 Jews, only 32 have survived. Now, 32 is almost 10%, which sounds quite a bit for other places in our area. I know a neighboring village where they had about 1,000 Jews, and only five have survived from that village. So we were actually very, very lucky. And when I will share with you my my, uh, survival history, so to say, you'll see why we were so lucky that the few of us have survived. What was it like? In 19, for me, World War II started actually only in 1941, when Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union, because the two years that we were under Soviet occupation, we didn't feel actually any different between one regime and the other. People who are not wealthy, people who live in small places, they left alone and nobody bothered us. But things changed drastically, immediately as soon as the Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union. Did we know what's happening in Western Poland? Yes, we did. Some people tried to escape from there, came into our area and told us how harshly the Nazis are treating the Jews. Did we have a chance to escape? We had not chance to, didn't have a chance to escape. Why? When you live in a big city, when you live somewhere where you have transportation, then it would have been possible to run into the Soviet Union. But when you come from a small place, the only thing we had were horses and buggies. How far can you get on a horse and buggy, especially families with little children, before the mechanized Nazi army would take you over? Because within 10 days after they attacked the Soviet Union, they were already in our village and immediately immediately the atrocities started our village was much too small the army marched through in a few days and then they established civilian government the village our village was too small for the germans to set up a garrison so what they have done is asked for a volunteer local militia and this was probably one of the most painful things for us having lived been born and raised in such a small place where we knew every single individual, how many of our neighbors whom we knew so well, with whom we toiled the fields together, with whom we celebrated public holidays together and life events, how many of those young people have volunteered to become uh, militiamen? and it became clear very very quickly that their job was to help the nazis do the dirty work for them it started with the killings right away for sm- smaller groups and larger groups but i have to always ask this question because if we will not learn this lesson then all my uh, you know uh, um, a work of, of uh, teaching the young people uh, would, would uh, not amount to much. What is it? Why did one people hate another people to such an extent that when a change of government came about, they have chosen to collaborate with the Nazis instead of being neutral or whatever, to do whatever? How do this, does hatred like this come from? I can tell you there are many, many reasons for hatred, and now I have learned an additional reason why it was so hateful in our area more than anywhere else, why they were so hateful. But the major reason why the hatred existed between the two people, the, the few Jews that lived in that village and between the Christian people is because they were taught to hate. I know for a fact, and I can give you quite a few examples, that hatred was taught in the churches, in the schools, and in the homes. And when you teach hatred, that was the major reason. Of course there are other reasons. Um, there's sometimes, you know, uh, lack of knowledge about the uh, about another religion, or maybe some jealousies, or, or whatever. I found out now that uh, the reason uh, why that hatred existed more than anything else is because of the two years that we were under under the Russian occupation, and they hated the Russians, and so they have labeled every Jewish person as being a communist. Now I can tell you this, there were no communists in my village because the Jews were very religious and very, uh, you know, observant of their own religion. And the Russians were very much against it. And so none of them have ever collaborated or worked with the Russians. But they have labeled all Jews communists. And this is why the killing started. That's what they said at least. However, uh, we have noticed that most of the People that were killed first were those who were better educated. Those who had jobs in the occupied period of Russia. uh, And uh, in general, people, wealthier people. There were not really many wealthy people, but anybody who was a little bit better off than the others. They were the ones who were killed first. And when a group was killed, what they would do is take all their belongings, bring out into the marketplace, and anybody could take, when I say anybody, of course, not the Jewish people, but uh, anybody of the Christian people from our village and surrounding villages could go and take everything that they wanted. Uh, There was not much really left at that time still because of the laws that they have instituted for the Jewish people. Because as soon as they came in, they instituted the following. Jews must wear a yellow star, Jews must give up everything, uh, valuable property, anything made out of gold or metal. Uh, All our civil rights were taken away. All men of um, working age had to go and do hard labor. And of course, they didn't get paid for it. The only thing they did get is uh, an extra ration of bread at the end of the day. So these were the laws that they have, uh, issued for the Jewish people. So everything that we had of value was taken away right away for the Christian people. They had different laws. They told them they were coming to liberate you from communism. Uh, nothing bad will happen to you as long as you follow our rules. One rule you must know you cannot help Jews. You cannot give them any comfort because if you will, you too will be punished the same way as the Jews. So you see, we were caught in a very difficult situation. (sighs) There There was no ghetto in my little village, but there was no need for a ghetto because they knew exactly how many Jews were in town in that little place. And from time to time, they would have a roll call. And when somebody was missing, they would immediately ask Put the burden on the Jewish leadership, tell them, you must bring that person. And if not, then they would go and grab 10 hostages and they would kill 10 people for one individual that they would be missing. And you know, they, there was very few, it happens once in our village, I remember. And after that, after the first time, when uh, that one person we could not find and they killed 10. Nobody dared to run away because the first question people ask me is, "You saw what was happening immediately. The killing started. Why didn't you try to hide? Why didn't you try to run away?" We we were in a situation, caught in such a situation that even if we would find somebody who would hide us, uh, you know, uh, other people whom you knew so well, they would probably pay with their lives for your escape. So we simply nobody uh, dared to run. I remember I had a cousin who was at that time about 19 years old, and he came once to his mother and he said, I can see that they will sooner or later come and take me away too. I would like to run away and try to hide somewhere. And she told him, if your life is so dear to you that you don't care that the rest of us will get killed because of your escape, go ahead and do it. But he didn't do it after he realized that it was too much of a price to pay for his only escape. And even if, you know, he escaped, where would he hide? Who would hide him? When the Christian people were told, you must not help or hide any Jewish person. And yet, I must tell you that there were some extraordinary individuals. I mentioned to you it was painful to us the fact that so many have collaborated and helped the Nazis do the dirty work, because all the small killings were done by our own, by our own local militiamen. But I must tell you, there were on the other end some extraordinary individuals whose conscience moved them, and at such a horrible time, took a risk with their lives and helped. In my village, the same as in many other places, I hear from other survivors, there was one man that stands out more than anyone else. He lived in a homestead about three kilometers away from our village, and when he saw what was happening, he tried to help. First, what he did, I did not mention it in the beginning, My mother had her last baby 10 days before the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union. So we had a tiny little baby on our hands. There were no stores in the village, in a village like ours, that one could um, possibly go and buy milk. So this man would sneak in the back of our house because the Nazis took away our cow right away as soon as they came in. He would sneak in the back of our house and he would leave us some milk for the baby which was an extraordinary, heroic thing in itself to do, because not just a a, a militia man would see him, but even a neighbor would see him do such a thing, could go and tell on him, and he would be punished for doing such a thing. And one day, this man found my father standing in the back of the house, and he told him, he says, listen, I see what's happening in this place, He says, in smaller groups, not a month or went by whether a smaller group was not singled out for for killing. He says, I'm afraid that when your turn will come, he says, I would hate to see, you know, your parish. If you will have a chance, I want you to know I want to help you. I will leave my barn door open. And if you will come to my barn, uh, I will somehow have a chance to hide you. You know how much courage it takes at a time like this? I often ask myself as an adult, because I was a child at that time, uh, if I would have had the courage to do such a thing, because if he would have been caught, he and his family would have been killed, his house would have been, uh, you know, burned down, and yet that man took a chance, and these are the true heroes of that period. It turned out that my father did not had a chance to run and uh, escape into his barn, but the word spread in our village quickly that here is a good man who is willing to help. And when the final solution came, what the Nazis called, meaning when they decided that everybody, every Jewish person person should be killed at a certain time, that one man saved 10 Jewish people. And. these are the people that should not be forgotten because they have done the right thing it seems to me even though they took a chance with their lives the first 15 months in my village we lived in such total fear day and night not knowing you know you would get up in the morning and you did not know whether you really see the end of the day your father was taken away to work in the morning Uh, We looked forward to seeing him every day return, because if he would not return, and it happened that some people were taken away for labor, and they never returned. They decided that they they are dispensable, and they killed them where they were working. And once they killed the heads of the family, they would come and take the wife and the children, and they too would be killed later on. And so, you know. I remember trying to wait every single day to see if my father will come back, if we still have a chance for another day, you know, to live a little bit longer. And then the humiliation. Every Everyone, I, I I'll tell you, what they used to do is single out some more prominent people, such as the rabbi in our, in our uh, community. And our militiamen, this was not done by the Nazi soldiers that came in and did the, the, the uh, later on the, the major killings. They would humiliate him any way they could, take him into the militia station, beat him up, and they would forbid us to come to his help or to uh, treat him and and help him get well. Um, The fear and the hopelessness with which we lived from day to day, we never thought that any one of us really will have a chance to escape death. The only thoughts that I remember as a child that I had was primarily, how am I going to die? Hoping that, you know, in our area they would just simply take the people and shoot them. Hoping that when they will shoot me that I would be dead. Because if you were not dead, if they shot you and you were still alive, then they would bury you. They wouldn't waste another bullet on you. And it happened to... A, Boy, a little boy who was my friend. And I remember the people who went to bury them said that they had no choice. They they buried him alive. And this was something that I, you know, in my mind was the most fearful thing. I was hoping that at least if I'm dead, I don't care what happens later on, but I should be dead once they have shot me. And so I Uh, I'm I'm trying to find the right words to convey the feeling uh, of a young child at that time. Uh, The fear and the hopelessness and and the feeling of what have I done wrong? Am I not the same human being as somebody else? I walk out in the street and I am not allowed to step on the sidewalk just because I'm a Jewish person. Uh, absolutely nothing even though I was a year um, 10 a year later was 11 years old and I did not have to go to work but I would try to go and clean the streets clean the marketplace do anything that one possibly could just to get out of the house and to show that you're still a useful person that maybe they will leave you alone and then came the final solution that was 15 months after we were already under the Nazi occupation. For some reason they've decided that not only our village but several villages around us should become Judenrein. Um, you know at that time i didn't understand it it's all we learn i read a lot about the history of that period this was already the time when young people have organized in uh, fighting groups in the forest we call them partisans but if you don't know the term partisans you might use the think of the term freedom fighters and they have organized and tried to disrupt the german war effort and so they have thought who would be the most uh, reasonable ally for those people that are trying to hide in the forest and fight them because they treat the Jews so badly, probably the Jews. And so the first victims were the Jews. They have decided that all of them in that area where the partisans were gathering, that they should be killed. And they came, they always had executions on a Jewish holiday. Uh, it was kind of like to add insult to injury, to mock us. So they would pick a Jewish holiday and that's when the executions would take place. And on the holiest of all the Jewish holidays, um, it was it's a day of atonement. They have decided that not only our village but several others should become what they call Judenrein. They told us, they had a pretext and told us that, that they are going to resettle us. in a a larger place. Uh, But when they didn't allow us to take anything, we realized right away that this is not a resettlement. This is probably the final day of our lives. And after they gathered us up in the marketplace, they put us in the only building, a public building that we had in our village. And they locked up the doors and the windows and we were waiting to see what's going to happen. They came in, they took ten men, and handed them shovels, and we knew right away that those ten men went to dig our grave. And the thing that I, as I think back, I thought these were acts of bravery, actually. There were about 120 people in that one house, locked up there. Actually, more than 120. must have been 150, because if you were let out, And I did not hear any screaming, I did not hear any crying, not from the little children or the parents, because we knew nothing will help. We were just sitting and waiting for the final moment. And when the men came and told us where they dug our grave, The only thought that came to my mind, I was 11 and a half years old, I was very skinny, I was a very good runner, and the thought that came to me was only when they will take me to walk up to that ditch where they dug, the only thing I can do is start running. And there was one area where there were some trees, and I, because I knew the village well, I thought, when I will get to this point, I'll start running, and maybe, I know they'll shoot me in the back, but at least I'm not gonna walk up to that open pit where everybody else has been shot already. These are thoughts of a child, you know, fantasies. To be honest with you, I don't know if I would have had the courage to do that if. The moment would have arrived, but something happened in between. Just hours before the execution, it was already the end of the day, it was getting dark, one of the Nazi officers came in with a list in his hand and with some people, uh, um, some families written on it. The Germans called it Nusslecher Juden, useful Jews. They still needed them to work for them. And so they called out a few families and the same as before when they killed somebody they would kill the rest of the family if they needed the head of the family they would let the rest of the family live a little bit longer and um, they called out a few families and they went out and we did not really uh, move from the uh, little corner where we were sitting uh, because we knew my father didn't have any special skills that they would call him out. And at the very end, my mother's name was Gold. And we were in shock. My mother grabbed the baby on her hands. He was already a year and a half old at that time. And she ran up to the door with my father and the rest of the kids. And the Nazi officer took a look at her. And he says, are you the seamstress here in the village? And she said, yes. He says, I want dresses made for my wife. I think I'm going to let you leave a couple of weeks longer. Now a couple of weeks doesn't look like a long time, but when you know that everybody else that's left behind there has only a few hours to leave, it seems like an eternity. I remember when we were left that um, uh, building. I ran to the house as fast as I possibly could. I think that my feet barely touched the ground. That's how because you wanted to for some reason you wanted to separate yourself from those that are doomed, or maybe they will change their mind. And when we came into our house, it was already totally empty because they assumed that all of us are dead, and they emptied out everything and took them into a warehouse and put it away there. We. I don't need to tell you, none of us slept a wink that night because at dawn they took out everyone, one by one, and they shot everyone that was left behind. My mother realized that she was led to live a little longer because she was a seamstress. They took away her sewing machine. How is she going to be able to make the dresses for that German officer? And so she went to him, to the, they were still in town, of course, at that time, and asked for permission to reclaim her sewing machine. And he understood it, and he immediately gave her permission to go ahead and do it and get claim it. And so my mother went to that warehouse where all the belongings, all the Jewish belongings were. And as she approaches that warehouse, she hears two people arguing with them between themselves. Uh, one a voice she recognized the woman that lived down the street, and a, one of her militiamen. The woman says, "Eva was my best friend. I know she would have probably wanted me to have her song machine i 'm going to take it and the militiaman said i couldn 't care less. My mother wants a song machine i 'm going to take it and uh, they they arguing, and my mother walks in with the permission to claim it. And both of them were in shock, you know, because both of them wanted the sewing machine. The sewing machine was a big deal in those days. And when my mother presented the sleep, they had no choice, the militiamen, but to give it to her. But the woman turned around and she told my mother Listen, Eva, if they would have killed you this morning, would you want me to have your sewing machine, or would you want this militiaman to have your sewing machine? Now, as a rule, my mother wouldn't even dare to talk back to a Christian person unless they say something bad about you and then you, uh, you, know, you can be taken away and, and killed. But she was already in so much pain. This was the morning where she uh, witnessed the killing of everyone that she knew all her life, just a handful of us that were let, let out. And so she told her, she said, she talked back to her and she said, listen, she says, I heard you say that you were my best friend. I want, you to, I want to ask you, Is this is how best friends act. You knew when the Germans came, they took away my cow. You knew I had a baby. You knew that I could not get milk for, for, for this was a boy for him anywhere. Did you come around once to ask me, can you use a little bit of milk for the baby? You never did. You were just hiding from me all the time, she says, and this is now you claim that you are my best friend The woman didn't know what to say But that very same day they took us away uh, To a ghetto in a neighboring town And before we left the house we found on our doorstep a jug of milk and a loaf of bread And I want you to know she didn't have to tell us uh, who did it. We understood right away. The woman was not a bad person. The woman never learned. Nobody taught her to care for others that are different than she is. And that's why she didn't do As soon as my mother explained to her what was the right thing to do, she came through and she helped. I, this is a minor incident, but you as young people, I want to tell you it is so important to be sensitive to the needs of others who are different than you are. Any human being that is in need, if we can possibly ever help them, we should do it. This is our duty and this is our obligation. That woman, I want to tell you something. I'm going to interrupt and interject something very, uh, you know pertaining to that particular woman. You know, when the Soviet Union was in our area there where I was born, we could never go there. They would never allow anybody to come back. Uh, But when the Soviet Union fell apart, my older brother, who lived in Israel, went, the first one, to take a look at what our village looks like, what happened there. And he found that woman. He knew about this incident and everybody told him that "Oh, this is the evil person you know she didn't help your mother because you know in a small place everybody talks and knows and he says no you're wrong she's not a bad person. He found out that she was a very sick woman and she needed medicine and, which you couldn't get in the Soviet Union. He lived in Israel where it was available and for years he would send her medicine to sustain her life. And I will tell you the whole village the whole village talked about this event, how my brother responded with kindness to this woman who didn 't uh, you know, show kindness to us, but this is the way to do. You learn by example. You know just because somebody uh, is not doing the right thing doesn 't mean that you don 't have to do the right thing. Let others learn goodness from you. Uh, rather than, you know, retaliate for things that were done wrong. What happened after, I mean, I'm interjecting this only because you're young people and you have a life ahead of you and maybe we can learn some lessons, you know, for kindness and caring about the others. What happened in that other town when they took us away immediately that very same day? They put us in a ghetto, it was a very small ghetto for useful Jews, what they called. And we knew, we understood, that as soon as my mother will not be useful anymore, she will, uh, they will take us away with the next selection. And so my father started immediately looking, maybe he can find something to do that would, uh, you know, make us more useful. And one day when he was taken to work, he walked by a warehouse where they were collecting plants. And he looked into that warehouse, and he saw that all those plants are rotting. He approached the manager of that plant, and he told him, he says, look what's happening. The Germans will think that uh, this is sabotage, and they will hold you responsible. He says, I don't know what to do. They told me to collect it, and I have no idea how to treat it. So my father told him, he says, listen, this was my hobby before the war. I know exactly how to treat those plants. Why don't you go to the Nazi officer and tell him that you need my services and maybe I can help you here. And so he did. And my father started working in that warehouse. And we felt a little bit better thinking, oh, now my father is a useful person. Maybe when they come to, uh, uh, to take away some people, we will not be taken away. But this is not what happened. About a week or so later, we see two trucks are rolling in to the ghetto. With a list of people to be taken away, they're not useful anymore. They have, to, even though it was a small ghetto, but they still wanted to <coughs> reduce their population. And uh, our name was on that list and we had no choice. Once your name is on the list and you're surrounded all the time, you know, with, with, with guns, there's no way you can run away and no way you can escape. And so I remember my father helped all of us get up in the, on the truck and he was the last one to jump up because he needed to help us first. And as luck would have it, in the distance, he has noticed the man for whom he was working. And he called out to him, he says, they are taking us away. Uh, uh, don't you need my services anymore? He says, I sure do. He says, go and see whether you can intervene with that Nazi officer, and maybe they will make an exception. That man had enough authority to stop the trucks for a few minutes, and went, got a permit for, my, for us to, to uh, disembark, and showed it to the driver, and he allowed us to stay in that ghetto. You see, every, every survivor that will tell you their experience, it is always you had to be terribly proactive, have the right skills, and be extraordinarily lucky. Because if it wasn't for that one lucky moment where my father saw the man uh, in the distance and he called out to him, and we were able to disembark, Uh, I can tell you I would not have been here. Because not a single person of those two truckloads did not survive the war. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they met a very tragic death later on, not much longer. So here we are with a baby in that ghetto. I was going to say feeling a little bit more secure. There was no such thing as really being secure at that time, but feeling that maybe we are a little bit more useful. Maybe we can stay here for a while longer. And we hear rumors that the partisans, those freedom fighters in the forest, are committing more and more acts of uh, What should I call it? They they are interrupting the the delivery of food for the Germans. They are letting, trying to make a name for themselves that they are a fighting force. And one day, without us knowing what's happening, even though we heard that some partisans are in the area, a group of those partisans decided to stage a raid on the town, on the small German garrison. Uh, that we, where we were in that ghetto and to destroy it. We had no idea what was happening. We heard a lot of shooting. The only thing we did is we lie down on the floor so that stray bullets will not uh, hit us. And when the sh- uh, shooting subsided, uh, my father looked out of the window and noticed one of the partisans. And he says, what are you doing? He says here, all the Jews from the ghetto have already escaped that young man apparently noticed when they were already retreating that there's the ghetto door still locked the gate so he ran in and he told the people he says this is your chance he says if you will run through the swamps into the forest somebody will tell you where to go get out of here or tomorrow as soon as we are gone they will uh, kill you all And so, without even having a chance to put on any warm clothes on ourselves or grab anything, we jumped through the window and ran through the swamps into the forest. My mother with the baby on her hands, who was only a year and a half old at that time, uh, I remember one thing that stood out in my mind is that he didn't even have a pair of shoes on his feet. I had a very light spring coat. It was November 1st, 1942. And the reason why I remember the date, I don't, I would not have remembered the date, to be honest with you, I was a young kid. The man who staged the raid on that town later on wrote a biography of his life and he wrote that on this and this date, on November 1st, we attacked the town of Meadil and this is where I was, so I know that it must have been November 1st when we were finally, you know, had a chance to escape from the ghetto and get into the forest. And I cannot tell you what kind of a moment it was of extraordinary euphoria. Having lived already for what, 16, 17 months under the Nazi occupation, every single day your life is in danger and all of a sudden you find yourself with no one with a gun standing behind your back. We thought maybe, maybe now we have a chance. We thought the partisans would help us, but the commanding officer of the partisans told us. He says, I need young men with arms to help me fight. You are middle-aged people with children. He says, I have no use for you. I'll do one thing for you. I will um, give you a guide, and he will take you from here into a faraway, large forest. And there, you'll have to fend for yourself. And there, a new chapter of our survival starts. Can you imagine having lived through uh, you know, being in our town and into the ghetto, and now we find ourselves in the forest. The feeling was uh, a, a little easier because there's nobody uh, with a gun behind you. But the the conditions, uh, the weather, it started snowing a, a week right after we came into the forest. A week later, it started snowing. What did we had absolutely nothing. Uh, when when uh, I stopped to think about it, yeah, how we made it through the first winter, it's, uh, you know, it's mind-boggling. The partisans helped us make a bonfire, and they told us unequivocally, you guard it with your life, because if you let the fire go, you will surely, you're as good as dead. And my mother followed through on it uh, as they told. Uh, Every child had to sit around the fire because that's the only way we could get a little bit of warmth. And when I say a little bit of warmth, uh, in the winter, in the horrible cold, you sit in front of the fire and the the front is burning, literally, but your back is freezing. And you keep turning, you know, to make sure that you warm up your back a little bit. I remember I used to shiver all the time, so hard that um, I couldn't understand, I couldn't stop it, so one day I asked my father, because uh, with my simple way of thinking at that time, I said, tell me, is this what will happen, if this is how my soul will jump out of my body by shaking so hard from the terrible freezing cold? I didn't know <laughs> what could it be that makes me, you know, jump like this all the time. Uh, where do you get a little bit of food? The cold was horrible. But where do you get a little bit of food to, to even the minimal amount you need to survive? Uh, because we had absolutely nothing. Somebody told us where the nearby villages are. And we went to a nearby village and begged for food from the farmers. And I must tell you that those farmers who are poor people themselves were so kind when they saw our despair, when they saw our terrible need, would help with whatever they could. A few potatoes or a few beets. Maybe sometimes if we were lucky, a little piece of cabbage. And we would bring it back to the forest. And my mother would cook it. And uh, and what did she cook it in when we had nothing? I mean, this is something that I very rarely tell people. One day she went to the village and found a farmer discarded a um, broken pail they couldn't carry water with it anymore because it had holes in the bottom and my mother asked for it and he gave it to her and so we would bring the pail put it in the middle of the bonfire, put some clay soil on the bottom to make sure that the water doesn't run out so quickly. And there was no water either. So what we did, we collected snow and melted snow for water. And do you have any idea how much snow you have to collect to get just a little bit of water? This was our job, constantly collecting snow to fill the pot so that we can boil the few potatoes or the few beets that we got in the village. And my mother would divide up and it was there were many days where we had no more than maybe three potatoes for the whole day and we had to get by with it. If it wasn't enough, the hunger and the cold, infestation of lice because we had nothing to change into. We had no water to wash ourselves with. So before you knew it, uh, we were so infested with lies that we would literally, you know, my mother would take off our clothes every night, shake it over the fire, and we would hear the crackling and put it back on again. Um, It was impossible to get rid of them. And that was another one of the nuisances. The younger people, moved away very quickly from that area in the forest they found a way of making a dugout they they made themselves dugouts and they would crawl in and the only people that were left were us because we had little children nobody wanted to be with little kids and one elderly couple who nobody wanted and you know at that time i felt it was so sort of very selfish of them to Move away and not help us at all, but I could understand now. Everyone had to look out for themselves. It was only weeks later that somebody had pity on us and helped us make a little dugout in the ground so that so that we would have a place to hide from the elements. If it was for all those terrible things that I mentioned to you in the forest the first winter, and if they left us alone. Uh, most of us who escaped from the ghetto would have survived. But unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, the Germans found out, probably this disgruntled farmer somewhere told them where the Jews are hiding because they would get a reward for for informing on Jews. You know, salt was scared that you would get five kilograms of salt if you told them where Jews are hiding. And the Germans would come to the forest periodically and try to find us and try to kill as many people as possible. And I remember the first winter, we went through three blockades, which was a horrible, horrible experience in itself. Because again, it's the winter. You're running, they can tell by the footprints as to where we went. And uh, to survive any of those blockades was really, really a miracle. I just want to see whether I have enough time. Uh, if we'll have a question and answer period, ask me if we'll have the time to tell you an example how difficult it was to, to survive any one of those blockades. Uh, by the end of the first winter, we realized that our luck uh, uh, We'll, we'll run out of luck, uh, you know. We succeeded in one to avoid being caught, in the second and the third. Uh, so we decided that we must leave this forest. And we heard that on a hill surrounded with a big swamp, there are some Jews hiding near, not too far from our village. And so we decided to venture out. This was already springtime from that forest into that other place. And we walked, I remember, a whole day and a night. The distance was not that big, but we all came down with typhoid fever right after the first winter. And so we were so weak and so emaciated from that hunger that we would probably walk a few steps and we would have to sit down and rest. We could not possibly, you know, move on. Uh, we found that place and the people that were hiding there And there, a much easier uh, period uh, started for us. Uh, Somebody helped us make a dugout, which was wonderful. We could, uh, you know, crawl in and not be, uh, you know, rained upon or or snowed upon, whatever. And uh, my father, when he went to the village to beg, the very first time that he went in that new place, people recognized him. And when a man recognized him, even though he was beyond recognition, you know, with, with old, uh, overgrown with a beard and, and, and so skinny, but the man recognized his voice when my father walked into his house and asked him whether he has something to share. He says, are you Svirsky from, from Kabilnik?" And my father said, yes. He said, what are you doing begging? He says, you were such a fine man, helping all of us all your life, and now you became a beggar? So he says, I have no choice. My wife and the children are hiding in the forest, and they are very hungry, all of them. I need some food. He says, I'm not going to let you do it. He says, people in this village know you. And I don't want them to be uh, 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 gloating, you know, over the fact that you're you're sunken so low as as begging for food. He says, you stay in my house. And he sent his two sons through the village to collect as much food as possible. He says, to say this is for a very special person, and he's in need, and you must help. I remember my father came from the village to the forest. For the first time, he brought a whole bag of black peas and a bigger bag of potatoes. And my mother cooked for the first time, you know, a black pea soup. And each one got a can, that's all that there was at that time. And I remember when my turn came to eat that can of black pea soup, all I could think of is how foolish I was before the war. Why didn't I? Eat black pea soup, it's so delicious. And I thought to myself, the only thing I want, if the war will end and I will survive, to have just enough black pea soup to eat, but not just a small can, enough so that my stomach will hurt from too much food instead of too little food. These where the wishes of a young 12-and-a-half-year-old kid, you know, who went hungry for such a long time, and to whom that can of black pea soup cooked without salt, without uh, onions, without anything, tasted like manna from heaven. Believe me. Uh, as you can hear the second year was much the when i say the second year the second winter because we were a total of 20 months hiding out in the forest like like hunted animals you know uh, just trying to to make it from a day to day uh to to live a, a day longer uh, our hopes were uh, greater in the forest than while we were incarcerated in the ghetto or in, in our own hometown because we already heard from people that the German uh, assault on, on Russia has stopped and the Russians are beginning to push back. So we thought maybe, maybe if we are lucky, maybe some of us will survive and be there to tell the world what those beastly Nazis have done to our people. because. Uh, Even though they have killed many non-Jews also, they have killed, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Poles, uh, Ukrainians, and uh, uh, other people, anybody, and their own people, but Jews they have singled out for one reason only, just because they belong to the Jewish faith, and this was their ideology, so to say, to exterminate all the Jews under the Nazi rule we were extremely, extremely lucky that we were liberated early. You heard July 4th, 1944. The war didn't end until May 1945. It went on for a whole year longer. So those who were incarcerated in the concentration camps had to go through those horrible ordeals for almost a year longer than we did. So that's why I said I'm very, very lucky survivor. And when the war ended, we had no idea that there were concentration camps. Uh, We just saw what was happening around us, total devastation. In every village, in every little town, there were just a handful of Jews that were left alive, hiding either in the forest or some Christian person that was kind enough to take a chance and hide them. And uh, once the, I don't want you to think that we were not grateful to the Soviet army that had liberated us, but once we were liberated and we saw what the Soviet system is all about, we realized that this is not the best place for us to stay. Uh, we used the opportunity that there is a rule, uh, former Polish citizens can go back to Poland. And so we, my father said, that's our chance to get out from the Soviet Union. We left the Soviet Union, came to Poland, realizing that there, too, is a communist system. We don't want to stay there. Clandestinely, we escaped from Poland through Czechoslovakia and Austria, and we came in the American zone in Western Germany. And there, in, they put us in what they call DP camps, displaced persons camps. And we lived there for about five years until we found a chance where to immigrate. Most of the survivors, most of the survivors in 1948, when the State of Israel was created, went to live in the State of Israel, including my older brother, who found us after the war. Another older brother that was taken away, unfortunately, perished in one of the extermination places. When uh, our turn came, you know, to find a place where to immigrate, we too wanted to go to Israel at that time, but the war was going on. And we made contact with my two uncles. My mother and father both had brothers in the United States. And we made contact with them, and they suggested that we come and take a look what the United States is all about. They said, it's a free country. If you will not like it, they will always let you go wherever you want to go. And uh, so we took them up on their offer, and even though we couldn't come directly through Canada, we came to the United States. And I want you to know that no one is more grateful to this country than those of us who survived the Holocaust and found a home, we found uh, religious freedom, we found economic freedom here in this country, and we will be forever grateful because up until now, we have always lived under dictatorships or under great discrimination. And here, for the first time, I feel like an equal human being to everybody else. It took a while to get adjusted to it. I remember the first years when I came here, I was afraid of everyone who wore a uniform, including I once took a train ride, and the man came by in a uniform. I was scared he was going to arrest me because. A uniform was something danger, you know? But we can overcome. We can overcome all the difficulties there are in life. And so how many of you guys have been to the Holocaust Museum in in, uh, Washington? Oh, wow, many of you. Thank you. Thank you. Those who haven't had a chance, please go. Please go and see it. And I want to bring to your attention one item in that museum. I mean, there are many items. Uh, you know, I found a picture of my girlfriend who lives in Toronto, and the Nazis, she was in the Kaunas ghetto, and they were snapping pictures of children, and she was there. Uh, all of a sudden, I see uh, her picture uh, flipping through, you know, in the, in, the, in the museum. But the thing that I wanted to uh, bring your attention to is the saying, as you leave the museum. It is such an important saying, it was done, it was said by a German um, a clergyman, his name was Nummler, Martin Neumiller. And he himself, in the beginning, when Nazis came to power, he was very much pro-Hitler. Pro but when Hitler uh, declared that the church must obey the state, uh, he was very disappointed and started to speak up. And when he started to speak up, he was thrown into a concentration camp. And when he survived, um, people came to him because not only was he a well-known clergyman, he was also, you know, a philosophical individual. And people asked him. They said, "Tell me, how is it possible in a?" The most uh, enlightened country in Europe, Germany, was considered. How is it possible that in this country such atrocities could have happened? How come that a people so intelligent could become so barbaric? And he says, I'll tell you how it happened. He says, when the Nazis came to power, and they came and they took away the Jews, I wasn't Jewish. So he says it didn't concern me, and I didn't speak up. And I'm just paraphrasing. Then they came for the communists. I wasn't a communist, it didn't concern me, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the labor people and, and uh, he says, I didn't belong in that group either and so I didn't speak up. And then at the end they came and they took me away. And when they took me away, there was no one left to speak anymore. And there is a tremendous lesson here for us to learn. What happens in a society when the rights are denied one group of people? And we remain silent. We don't speak up. There comes a point where our own rights will diminish to a point where we we too will have no voice. So we must care what's happening to others. Minorities are to be protected in any society. You know, democracy doesn't mean that the majority rules. Democracy means that the rights of the minority is also protected. that, that is the system that we live in here, and I will tell you, as young people, you don't know how lucky you are that you were born in this wonderful country. And I know many of you will probably become leaders in your communities or in the country, and it will be up to you to see to it that the rights of every individual are protected that we uh, not teach hatred, that we teach kindness and tolerance to other individuals who are different than others, and to be very sensitive to the needs of other individuals. I see that the time is running, and I want you to have a chance to ask a few questions. So I will finish here. And uh, I want to thank you all for listening so carefully. Before you ask even a question, I have I have a prop to remember because I forgot to mention it to you earlier. Okay, I um, I mentioned to you the teaching of hatred, and that was really uh, a terrible thing. Through the ages, that the the church has uh, uh, accused the Jews of being Christ killers, and it uh, you know um, it was the source of the hatred that started. Maybe later on there were other reasons, but that was the main source. And after the war, with Vatican II, they have realized, Pope John XXIII, he was an extraordinary a kind individual, and he said, it was such a terrible injustice to teach this doctrine. We must change it. We must absolve the Jews of all generations from deicide. From and so it has changed, and slowly it will take a long time before people, something that you have learned, that people have learned over, over decades, you know, uh, millennia, uh, to overcome right away. But here in the United States, I am most proud. We are doing something about it here. Uh, about several years ago, there was a gathering of all the bishops in the United States and they have come to the conclusion that we must be proactive and do something about it. And they have instituted in the Catholic schools to teach not only about the Holocaust, but also to teach about Judaism, to know what Judaism is all about. And I have gone to many to many uh, Catholic schools. Uh, this young lady uh, has uh, been to a Uh, Archmere Academy in Wilmington, where I live, and Shindles, I used to come there every year. And this is what they are doing, most of the teachers, who have undertaken to teach about Judaism and about uh, the Holocaust. And that's a great step in in the right direction. Uh, even uh, Pope Benedict XVI, that is, wrote a book right now, and he also put a whole chapter about this injustice and apologizing to the Jewish people for what was done to them over all these years. I'm waiting for a question before I can.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, While well, you guys were hiding in, in the forest and stuff, how did you guys receive information about the war?
1: Like, Palmers. Some of the farmers, we, we had no information. There was no radius or anything. But a farmer would go into the bigger city sometimes, and he, they would find out some information. And when we would come to the village, they would share it with us. That's the only way we could uh, find out. As a matter of fact, it was a farmer who came to us. The day that we were liberated, we had no idea. We heard a lot of shooting going on, cannon shooting. And he came in, he says, you're free. I said, what do you mean? He says, I went to the major highway and I saw the first Russian tanks. Which means that the Germans have already retreated, only by word of mouth. Anybody else? You've forgotten the thing that I have asked you, right? To remind me about how we escaped the first blockade. But that's not as important as what I want to tell you. Could have things been different if governments and other people would have cared. There were outstanding individuals who cared, defied their governments, and helped. I just recently watched the film, a DVD, on a, the Japanese ambassador to Lithuania, who really, uh, uh, he had no right to do what he has done. His government told him absolutely no help, no visas to any Jewish person. And he took it upon himself when he saw the plight of the Jews in, in Kaunas in, in Lithuania. He took it upon himself and he worked day and night to issue as many visas as he possibly could and escape through Russia to an unknown island. It was a fictitious thing, but a way of getting out from, the, uh, from under the Nazi rule. These are heroes. Uh, those of you who have gone to the museum in Washington, you know it's standing on Raoul Wallenberg Square. How many of you have heard of Raoul Wallenberg? Anybody heard of him? As a matter of fact, once a stamp was issued in his honor here in this country. And I want you to know who he was. He was a Swedish diplomat who served in Hungary. And when the Germans came to round up the Jews in Hungary, which was a couple of years later than in our area, he has created a safe haven. He singled out a couple of thousands of Jews he saved, gave them uh, documents that they are uh, Swedish subjects, and they are not, uh, you you know, uh, the Germans should not take them away. One individual saved a couple of thousand Jews. You probably saw the film Schindler's List. If you haven't, rent it and see it because it's such an accurate depiction of what happened at that time. One individual, his conscience was was touched and he helped save a a couple of thousand people. I happen to have known a couple of the Schindler, uh, what they call the Schindler Jews. When I lived in New Jersey, there were two of them in our community, and they always used to tell us the story about Schindler. And so I, you know, even before the movie came out, I heard about him. The Holocaust Museum in Washington has sent me this calendar. Uh, It's called heroes. And these are only a couple that I've mentioned to you. There is a whole nation of heroes. Anybody knows who is that nation who has saved every single Jewish person during the Nazi occupation? Bulgaria. Bulgaria. In Bulgaria, too. That's right. That's right. You're absolutely right. Denmark? Denmark. Yay. That's good. The Danish people, you know, when Nazi Germany occupied Denmark and Bulgaria too, Bulgarians have also uh, saved their Jews, that's true. I shouldn't say the only one, uh, Denmark. And when Nazi Germans came and they told the Jews to wear the yellow star, uh, the king himself went on the radio, because of course they didn't have television in those days, <laughs> that's a new innovation, and he said, we do not differentiate in our country between Jews and Danes. We are all the same people. If the Jews have to wear a yellow star, uh, I will be the first one to put on a yellow star. And when the Germans saw that there was resistance to their orders, they have rescinded the order. And the Danish people have realized that they will not be able to you know, um, resist the Nazis for much longer. So they got organized, and at night, On fishermen's boat, they smuggled out every Jewish person from, from their country into Sweden. That was a neutral country. And so every single Jew in Denmark was saved. This was a heroic country. We should praise them, and we should really emulate this type of people who stood up for the rights of others.